Well, last Sunday we studied First and Second Chronicles in the Old Testament. Mentioned how these books are kind of like reboots of First, Second Samuel and First, Second Kings. Not in a bad or disingenuous way. Just it's another author writing much later. And he wanted to give a more optimistic theological perspective on Israel's history leading up to the exile. And Chronicles covers much the same territory as Samuel and Kings, leading right up to the exile of Israel and Judah. But there's one big difference, and that, that's how it ends. The Chronicles was written after the fact, after the exile was over, after Israel was allowed to return. So it finishes with this decree of Cyrus the king allowing Israelites to return to their land. So Chronicles has a much more optimistic and hopeful look on the history of Israel. But as we left off at the end of Second Chronicles, it makes you wonder, like, what happens next? Okay, Cyrus, the king of Persia, has decreed that the Jews may return to their land and rebuild their temple. All right, so what happened? Did they do that? Did they go back? How did it go? What happened next? We get this long and storied history of Israel, and, and Chronicles leaves off with a bit of a cliffhanger. But this is where Ezra and Nehemiah come in. They're basically the sequels. They tell us what happened immediately after Second Chronicles ends, after Israel is allowed to return to the land. They fill in the blanks on what happens next. Now, like First Second Chronicles, maybe not as much, but Ezra and Nehemiah are still probably fairly neglected books of the Old Testament. I mean, Chronicles got to be up there of, of places people read the least, but Ezra and Nehemiah perhaps overlooked. But you shouldn't. When it comes to issues of, of spiritual leadership and even civil leadership, there are a few other places that, that surpass Ezra and Nehemiah. But more importantly, there's specific theological purpose to these books. And like with Chronicles, we're not just getting a history of Israel. No, we're being reminded and encouraged that despite all that's happened, God has not forgotten his people or his promises. He's still sovereignly working to bring about his plan for, for Israel and for all the nations. And we find here, especially God can even turn the hearts of pagan kings to bring about his will, to preserve, protect even prosper his people. Israel needs only to trust and obey this God. And the message of Ezra and Nehemiah, as we'll learn, it's always relevant, but perhaps today more so. You know, it's in, in this time after the exile, Israel was having to come to terms with the fact they would not be a sovereign nation anymore. They would not be ruled by a Hebrew king anymore. They'd be under the dominion of Gentile powers, Gentile wicked governments. But that didn't call into question God's care for them. I mean, they, they lost their national sovereignty due to their own sins. Their foreign oppression was just meant to make them turn to their God even more. That's something we studied. But Israel, what they needed to do is just continue to trust their God, seek him, walk in his ways. God was still their God. He would secure them. And it, it's, a, it's a small thing for God to use even pagan, wicked, Gentile kings to further his purposes like I said, even to bless his people. We find that here. And that same message applies to us. Look, America has never strictly been a Christian country, but, but it was founded on Christian ideals and principles. But it can be increasingly said that we no longer live in a nation that's friendly to Christianity. We will not be ruled by a man of God. But that should not make God's people hopeless or depressed. I mean, this has all happened before. And we, like Israel, just need to continue to trust God, seek him, walk in his ways, knowing he will sovereignly turn the hearts of even wicked kings or presidents to bring about 
his purposes. God will build his church. Christ will come again. And the church in turn must continue to press on, just do what is right. Ezra and Nehemiah were written specifically for the encouragement of of ancient Israel. But it's a message inspired and and profitable for the church today as well. For all of God's people who live as exiles on this planet, we can find here hope. So tonight we're going to go through this background as we get to know the series, Getting to Know the Old Testament. We're going to do a back-to-back, Ezra and Nehemiah together in one study tonight. So let's do that now. Get into a little bit of basic background. And you might wonder, like, why I do these together? We've been mostly doing just books one-on-one, one one message per book of the Old Testament. But we combined First and Chronicles. We combined Ezra and Nehemiah for the same reason, because they were originally one book. In the Hebrew Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah were together. They were just one book. And uh, much like Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, these books were only later divided into two by, by the, the Greek version of the Old Testament. A quick side note, the New Testament does not quote Ezra or Nehemiah. doesn't mean they're not inspired, just they're never referenced in the New Testament. Now the author, the Jews unanimously attributed Ezra and Nehemiah to the same person, Ezra the scribe. The same as First Second Chronicles, and that seems the most likely option that Ezra wrote First Second Chronicles and then Ezra and Nehemiah. And there's some internal evidence here. Ezra himself shows up starting in chapter seven, and at the same time he starts writing in the first person. So that kind of says something. And you know, if it is true that Ezra wrote Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah is really the, the obvious and perfect sequel to everything he said. He's just showing what happened after the decree of Cyrus. And it's not coincidental, if you look at the last verse, or, or verses of Second Chronicles, and you turn the page to Ezra, and you look at the, the first verses of Ezra, they're almost identical. Someone just copied the end of Chronicles and made it the beginning of Ezra, and likely Ezra did that, showing continuity between these books. This is just the sequel. It's the literal sequel to Second Chronicles. Uh, Ezra starting off now with the book of Ezra, showing what happened after that decree of Cyrus the king. And the same thing, if you were with us, you realized Chronicles, it's a compilation, it's an inspired compilation, and he used many resources, ancient resources, royal records. Ezra and Nehemiah does the same thing. It literally reproduces ancient letters from the Persian royal record. Very few people would have had access to the royal archives of the Persian empire. Ezra the scribe, who was prominent in Persia, even though a Jew, I mean, he fits the bill. Who else would have had this much access to these, these records? So likely, uh, Ezra is the author of these books. The audience, it's the same as Chronicles. Who is Chronicles written to? It's Israel after the exile, post-exilic Israel, the, the people coming back to the land to encourage them. Ezra and Nehemiah, same thing. This is after the fact. This is almost 100 years after the return from exile, but a message to encourage them to to stay the course, and serve their God. The date of this book, the date of events covers 538 BC. That's the decree of Cyrus allowing the Jews to return. All the way up to to 430 BC, that's the governorship of Nehemiah. So Ezra and Nehemiah, about 100 years of of Israelites' history, written probably in the middle or to early 400s. But realize, you know, you had Chronicles, you had Malachi, and these are, these are the last books in the Hebrew canon, in the Old Testament canon, last books written, last books recording events. 
you have Nehemiah along with Malachi, but, but mostly Nehemiah, it's, it's the end of the line of the Old Testament narrative. After this, it's just silence for 400 years. It, Nehemiah, that, that cliffhanger doesn't get answered till the coming of Christ. You know, what happens next in Israel's history? No inspired book was given to tell us. This is the end of Old Testament narrative. Now, setting. Let's talk setting of these books. This is important for you to grasp, especially if you're not super familiar with Ezra and Nehemiah. If you don't know the setting behind these books, you'll be pretty lost. You're just casually reading the Bible, flipping through the pages, like, what should I read today? And you land on Ezra and Nehemiah. You start reading. You'll probably be lost if you don't know a little bit of background about the setting of these books. Now, granted, this setting follows immediately after Chronicles. So if you were here last week, you're at an advantage. You know where these books fit. But let me just quickly bring you up to speed on, on Ezra and Nehemiah specifically. You know, it goes back to this big event, the exile. God warned Israel if they forsook the covenant and went after other gods, he would eventually just dispossess them from the land. He'd kick them out. And that happened after hundreds of years of God's patience. The time was up. So northern Israel was exiled by the Assyrians, 722 BC, taken captive. And then southern Judah was exiled by the Babylonians from 605 BC to 586 BC, uh, three exiles. And prophet Jeremiah prophesied during this time, though, that this exile for Judah would last 70 years, after which God would allow them to return. And here now that the 70 years is up, that Babylonian empire was conquered by the Persian empire. 539 BC. And God in his sovereignty, he turned the heart of this new Persian king Cyrus to favor the Jews. And so just one year later, 538 BC, he issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to their land and rebuild their temple. That is pretty unprecedented in in all of history, ancient history. You just allow a captive, captured people to just go back, rebuild their temple at their expense. This was paid for by the Persian Empire. They just, Persian taxes built that temple. This is pretty unprecedented, but this is where the book of Ezra begins. Now, technically, there were three deportations of Judah to Babylon. And in a similar way, there's actually three returns three separate returns to the land that you should be aware of. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah chronicle these three returns. So you have the first return under a guy named Zerubbabel, 538 BC. This is Ezra chapters 1 through 6. It's the first return, Ezra 1 through 6 under Zerubbabel. He's the main figure. He's the governor over Jerusalem. He's a descendant of David. He's not their king. But he's their leader, and he leads them to rebuild the temple. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah encourage the people during this time. Zerubbabel leads them in social and religious reform. Doesn't last too long. A generation later, the reforms kind of died down. The prophet Malachi rebukes the people. A couple of generations pass. They did rebuild the temple, as we'll see, but not a lot has changed in Jerusalem. The, the temple itself was really a, a sad reminder of all that they had lost, but we'll, we'll talk more about that later. That's the first return, though, uh, Ezra 1 through 6, under Zerubbabel. The second return is under Ezra himself. This is recorded in Ezra chapters 7 through 10. You fast forward about 80 years to the second return. So several generations have passed. It's around 458 BC. Ezra is a priest slash scribe. 
And he, he goes back from Persia, leads people back, priests, Levites, and their mission is to revitalize temple worship. The second temple has been constructed, but it's not going super well, and they're not following the letter of the law. He leads people back to reform the worship of Israel. Ezra himself being a priest in the line of Aaron. Name Ezra means Yahweh helps. He's joined by, by a civil leader, largely during this time, a little bit later, Nehemiah. His name means Yahweh comforts. And so a few years later, you have a, a third return of, of Nehemiah himself and, and just a few others. Not a massive return, but 445 BC. And this is just the whole book of Nehemiah. Chronicles the third return. And it centers on Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. And he had this position of trust and influence with the king. And that turned into favor. He was allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city walls, which we'll also see is unprecedented. You don't, you don't let a captive people and, and, and city rebuild their walls. That's just asking for trouble. But God made the king favor the Jews. Ezra and Nehemiah both came from the city of Susa in Persia during this time. Ezra was really the, the spiritual leader of Israel. Nehemiah, their, their civil leader. But they together led Israel in, in social and religious and economic reform. So that's just a, a little quick overview of, of these books of the Bible and, and the setting. We're talking about you know, the bigger picture, the, the record of what took place in Judah after the exile. You got a span of about 100 years. They come back, they rebuild the altar, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the city, they rebuild the walls. They face great opposition, but still God used key men to get this work done and more importantly, lead the people's hearts back to their God. So that's, that's really just the setting. I want to take you now through an outline, a bit of a synopsis like we typically do. Let's get a little bit closer to the surface of these books. You can see their character and, and what, they're, what, what they're really saying. Before we get to the purpose Let's talk outline and synopsis now. I've been giving you guys just the simplest outlines just for the sake of, I'm not giving a handout, so you're not going to copy the long thing down, but a four-part really high-level outline to Ezra and Nehemiah. Just Ezra 1 through 6, as simple as can be. Ezra 1 through 6, the first return under Zerubbabel. Ezra 7 through 10, the second return under Ezra. And Nehemiah 1 through 7, the third return under Nehemiah. And then Nehemiah 8 through 13 is just revival and reform. So let's kind of, let's trace this a little bit. It starts with Ezra 1 through 6, this first return. You just turn to Ezra 1 if you haven't already. And this first return, it's all about the rebuilding of the temple. That is the mission. That's the focus. People are back in the land for the first time. And it's their first order of business overall, rebuild their temple. But it starts with this decree. And this is, uh, largely the same as the end of Second Chronicles, but let's read it. Ezra 1, 1 through 4. This is now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. 
Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And it goes on, but it begins with this decree of this king. Again, staggering that this would come out of a pagan Gentile king. It's like a, like a Nebuchadnezzar. But you see what's going on here from the very beginning. Ezra makes it clear with this phrase, what's really happening. How is this happening? God's doing this. God, it says, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. This is God working, turning the heart of the king, whichever way he wants. And in this case, it's toward rebuilding, favoring the Jews. God is sovereign even over foreign kings. And the rest of chapter one, you learn about Cyrus and he, he gives to the Jews all the articles of gold and silver that were taken from the temple when Nebuchadnezzar conquered uh, Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. First, he robbed it. He took anything valuable back to Babylon. And it's been sitting there in storage. And Cyrus says, hey, all that stuff that was taken, take it back. All the articles of gold and silver. And that's important. Shows even though this would be a new temple, there was some continuity with the old temple. Chapter 2 lists all the people that would return, showing, again, continuity with the past. Israel was exiled. They weren't cut off. They were just exiled. And the same people, the same chosen people are now returning. Again, to chapter 3, they arrive in Jerusalem. They get settled. Their first work is to rebuild the altar. Not the temple, just the altar. They're going to resume sacrifices. And they do so. They celebrate the Feast of Booths. After that, they start to rebuild the temple. And after a while, they, they finish the foundation. There's no structure. There's no edifice. It's just the foundation. But already, they celebrate. It's, it's a milestone. And so look at chapter 3, verse 11. They've just finished the foundation, but it says this. It says, they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good. For his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praise the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So they celebrate, but it wasn't all celebration. Some people were crying. And that's verse 12. It says, yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. The, the, the older men were all Weeping, not rejoicing. Why? Pretty obvious because they, they saw even the foundation. And it's pretty clear that this second temple will not even compare to the glory of Solomon's temple. And it's, just, just, it's a bitter reminder to them of what they lost because of Israel's waywardness. But hope is not lost though. Israel is going to rebuild this temple and, and God will be with them to, to worship him again. Not without opposition. Chapter 4 gets into the opposition. This would not be an easy thing. They're not a sovereign nation. They're surrounded by people that well, pretty much hate them and do not want them to build this temple. And that's chapter 4. There's going to be opposition. You're basically introduced here to the ancestors of the Samaritans. Read the New Testament. You know about the Samaritans and the Jews. Samaritans hated each other. This is pretty much where they came from. When northern Israel was exiled by the Assyrians... They didn't take everybody. They left the poorest people in the land. So they left some Jews in the land. Meanwhile, the Assyrians imported their own people. And over time, these, these remaining Jews intermarried with these Assyrian Gentiles. And this kind of Jew-Gentile hybrid formed. 
And the religion was syncretistic, meaning they combined some Judaism with some paganism. And that was the Samaritan movement. Uh, it just evolved from there. And these people, at first, they, they said they wanted to help the Jews build the temple. That wasn't really true. They really wanted to subvert them. But the Jews already like, you have no part with this. You, you are unclean. You are you know, not pure Jews. And they, they cast them out. And so these Samaritans and others just just continued to oppose the work. They threatened them with force. They hired counselors against them. They appealed to the Persians. They tried to scare them into stopping the work. And guess what? It succeeded. They stopped work on the temple for for quite some time. About 15 years. They began in 536 BC, but they they were scared off by the people of the land. So they just, they gave up the work. The temple had a foundation, but it was just left unfinished for years. Now, it was about this time when God sent two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to prophesy to Israel and its leaders to, to take courage, finish this work. You can, on your own time, it'd be great. Read Haggai and Zechariah, see how they correlate to Ezra. But thankfully, in Ezra 5 shows that they finally resumed work in about 520 BC, and by 516 BC, they had finished, about four years later. People of the land kept trying to stop them, but the, the Jews appealed to the new king. There's a new king now, Darius. And they appealed to the king. They're like, hey, you search the royal records. The king before you, Cyrus, issued a decree that we should rebuild this temple. If you know anything about Persian law, a decree of the king became unalterable law. And he said, search the records. You'll see the decree of Cyrus. He said, rebuild. And he said, you should pay for it too. Persian taxes should pay for it. And so Darius searches the records. He finds, oh, it's so. And so he, he basically stops all opposition. He paves the way for the temple to be built. We don't have time to read Ezra 5 and 6, but it's amazing. You ever wonder, like, what, what's a letter of correspondence look like in 500 BC? Read Ezra 5 and 6. He records verbatim these, these letters of correspondence with the king and, and the memorandum back. It's really quite interesting. But you see, though, more importantly, the hand of God on the king. These chapters go to show that, look, at this point, Israel is not going to be free to worship God without fear or opposition. It, it'll be risky to worship their God, to obey their God. But God will still be with them. If they would just trust him and his word, he'll take care of them. And uh, in the end, that's what happened. So that's, that's the first part, Ezra 1 through 6, the first return. The temple is rebuilt, and that's pretty significant. Now, real quick, again, to the second return under Ezra. This is now Ezra 7 through 10. We're fast-forwarding now many decades. We're in the reign of Artaxerxes. This is the second return under Ezra. So who's Ezra? The book goes by his name. He really shows up finally in chapter 7. Who is he? We'll turn to chapter 7 of Ezra. And look at verse 6. It gives his lineage. It traces him back to Aaron. He, he will be, he, he's keeping the priesthood alive, the line of the priesthood. It says, verse 6, And Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. 
Ezra was a priest, a scribe. He was high up. We, we think probably a royal advisor over the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. And he wanted to return. He wanted to leave and go to Jerusalem so that he could revitalize temple worship. He could reinstate proper priesthood, proper practices in this temple that had been rebuilt. He takes with him priests and Levites and temple servants, people that were exiled. They kept their lineage alive. So they knew who, who do we still got that, that are priests by ancestry for the Jewish people. That, that's all that mattered. Are you in the right line? Are you in the line of Aaron? or Phineas, or so on and so forth. And they, he took these people with him. So this was a second return. And the only reason the king let him go was what? The hand of God was on him. That says verse 6, verse 9. It says it a bunch. The hand of, of his God was upon him. God caused him to prosper and to succeed. So his, uh, he set, led these people back. The key verse here is verse 10. This stands out in all the Old Testament. Worth memorizing just the, the character of Ezra. But what a, an example. It says, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is the epitome of the scribe. And notice the order. You, you start by, by, by studying. He, he studied the law of the Lord. That's not a small thing. Most of the kings and priests ignored the law of the Lord. They didn't even know it. In fact, they lost it for a while. It was in storage in the temple until Josiah, like, hey, we, we found this book. What is this? Like, they lost the law in storage. But Ezra, he's studying the law, the law of Moses. And then he practices it. Before teaching it, he puts it into practice. He's living according to the law, but then he will teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. This is what was always missing among the Jews, but Ezra would lay a new foundation that would that would continue on uh, for Israelite practice. Ezra, the scribe, uh, although he was good and pure, a uh, quick side note: he was the forefather of the scribes and really the Pharisees in the New and the New Testament. Of course, they took his pure lineage and went way off into legalism and uh, taking things too far. That's its own story. But Ezra is the ancestor of these the scribes, this new class of people who devote their life to copying, studying, teaching the law of Moses. Israel did not have that before this time. Okay, well, the rest of the chapter, you've got the decree of Artaxerxes. He allows Ezra and the people to return. And same thing, he doesn't just let them go. He says, you got full financial support. Whatever you want to do, whatever you're going to do to revitalize the temple, the taxes are going to pay for it. He, he charges all people to uh, around them, all the provinces, to pay for support, whatever they need. Look at chapter 7, verse 21. Again, this author, Ezra, he's including all these royal records. And here's one of them, verse 21. This is the king of Persia. He says, I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest the scribe of the law of the God of heaven may require of you, it shall be done diligently. He says in verse 23, whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of the God of heaven, so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. We don't know for sure. How can this king talk like this? Is he just being superstitious? Does he do this with a bunch of people and their gods. That was typical. They wanted favor among all the gods. Was he a true believer or not? We don't know. But we do know this. How do you explain this type of favor for the Jews, though? 
this overwhelming favor that, that was unprecedented in rebuilding their temple and all this prosperity. Well, uh, only God working in his heart. And, and I, uh, Ezra himself makes that clear. Look down to verse 27. This is now Ezra just talking in his book. And he says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes, that I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Ezra knows what's going on. He knows why this is happening. He's being given favor. It's just God's hand was on him and God's hand was moving the heart of the king to, to let this happen. So Ezra and his people show up in Jerusalem, chapter 8. They bring the tribute. They bring the gold. They bring the utensils. They, they get things going in the temple. Now, when Ezra shows up, though, what does he find in the city among the people? They'd been back in the land some 80 years at this point. But he finds a huge sin has been let go unchecked. And this is, this is one of the sins that led to all their problem. It's the sin of intermarriage. God had commanded them very clearly from the very beginning. Do not marry. Uh, let your, your, your sons and daughters marry of the nations around them. This is a huge is- issue. They're going to take your hearts away from the Lord. He forbid them from marrying among the nations around them. But Ezra shows up. And he, fa- he finds a huge chunk of the people have already done this. They have immediately gone right back and, and had foreign wives. Even some of the priests and rulers had foreign wives. It's like the same old, same old. So Ezra 9, he intercedes for the people. He prays. He confesses on their behalf because he recognizes, oh, we don't want to go down this road again. This is exactly what led us down this road of sin and idolatry. This, from Solomon on, they, they, they will steal the hearts of the people away from their God. This is a huge problem. So he grieves, he weeps, he repents on behalf of the people. He intercedes. The people were gathered together and they, they hear Ezra's intercession. They hear his, his teaching and, and they're moved. They are convicted and moved to repentance. And so not Ezra, but the people decide we got to do something about this. We have to correct this. We, he's right. We can't go down this road again. And so the people decide to conduct a mass divorce. And Ezra approves. They're going to put all of their foreign wives, everyone who married a foreign wife, they will be divorced and they'll send them away. They will put them away from the land. It's very interesting. Now, granted, God hates divorce. Malachi, a, a concurrent prophet, made that clear. But given the national plague of intermarriage, which God told them would directly bring his judgment, it seems they opted for the lesser of two evils. They opted to just cut off these mixed marriages before they could turn the heart of the people away from God all over again. So that's what happens. Chapter 10 ends with a list of all the people who had intermarried and all the priests who had intermarried. He he names them. Kind of name and shame. That's pretty much it. They are named they're shamed as a warning to future generations. You don't want to go down this road again. Don't test your God. He does not take this sin lightly. Anything, uh, any sin he does not take lightly. But this was a holiness issue. And Israel's past history of hundreds of years proved this would be a huge stumbling block. And this is how Ezra ends. 
that the people would be reminded that they need to seek their God with holiness, not repeat the sins of the past. We see, though, in Ezra himself, a zeal for God, a zeal for his holiness, a zeal for righteousness, a zeal for keeping the law, to actually take seriously the law of Moses. He knows all too well why they were exiled in the first place, and Ezra just can't bear seeing them go down that road again. And so he, he intercedes. Okay, that's the end of Ezra. That's how Ezra ends. Let's switch gears here and get into Nehemiah, which, again, that they're originally one book. So it's just, we're moving right along, though. And it takes us into the third return from exile, which is, you know, just a few years later. So it's, it's pretty concurrent with Ezra. But it centers on the man Nehemiah, though. And he's in Persia, but he's grieving over the state of Jerusalem. Some people have returned but they're being oppressed by the people around them. The city itself is still in disarray. There's still houses in in rubble and ash heaps, and there's no walls. They have no protection. So Nehemiah, he prays, he intercedes, and he asks God to act to let Israel be restored. He asks God to let him be the one to lead people back there to rebuild the walls, to, to restore the city of Jerusalem. And that's his prayer. Verse 11 of chapter 1 ends and it just mentions that he was cupbearer to the king. You might think like, you know, what, what's a cupbearer going to do about this? Doesn't seem like a very high position of power in the Persian Empire. But think about it. The cupbearer was one of the most trusted persons. Uh, you know, tasting his meal and, and drinking his wine, making sure it's not poison. That's, that's a trusted position before the king. It's a life or death position. And so the, the king trusted Nehemiah. He's at every meal to him, with him. And he became a, a type of trusted advisor to the king. Now, typically, as I mentioned, foreign powers did not allow cities to rebuild their walls. That's a huge liability. You're just asking for that city this conquered people to revolt again. And it's not easy to conquer a city with walls back then. You want to keep these vassal states under your thumb, paying tribute. You can't let them rebuild their walls. They might just revolt again. So the fact that this happened, that the king, though, granted Nehemiah's request, he let him go. It's like, well, once again, what will pay for the construction is just remarkable. It's clear God was going to use Nehemiah's position of influence before the king to to get this done. And so we find Nehemiah joins the ranks of Joseph and Daniel and Esther of these these Jews in pagan lands rising to positions of of authority and influence for such a time as this, as we'll see next time in Esther. So Nehemiah chapter 2, he requests of the king. The king grants it. He lets him go. Why? Chapter 2 verse 8, because the good hand of my God was on me. Same phrase as Ezra. The hand of God was on him. As a quick side note, there's another reason practically why the king favored the Jews. Because you do a little study, you put two and two together, you realize that Esther was the stepmother of King Artaxerxes. And she likely led the king to favor the Jews and even Nehemiah himself. Again, we'll see that more next time when we study Esther. Now, this rebuilding would not be without opposition. They will always be opposed now. There's fierce opposition. The same people groups, Samaritans and the Arabs, want to stop them from building the walls. 
Nehemiah inspects the walls. He gathers people to rebuild. His motivation is clear. Chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 17. That the city would no longer be a reproach. I mean, the, the state of Jerusalem reflected on the people. And as such, it was a reproach. But more importantly, Nehemiah knew God himself put his name on this city. And as Jerusalem is in disarray and, and, and reproach, it means God's name is in reproach. He wants the city restored for the good of his people and the glory of God's name. Chapter 3 shows all the people working together to complete this monumental task. Just like Ezra, chapter 4 highlights opposition. The Samaritans come to oppose the work. That they're, they're threatening to bear arms. Like, we're going to come and kill you if you rebuild these walls. We will attack And so Nehemiah led the people just to pray and and fight and to trust God and keep it up. Look at chapter 4, verse 16 of Nehemiah. He says, When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. He said, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. Verse 16, from that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work, and the other holding a weapon. And the, the sword and the trowel, they just had a, a weapon in one hand and a trowel in the other. Like, we're going to, we got to build the wall, but they could attack at any moment. And until the walls are up, we are not safe. But Nehemiah, with his leadership, led them to have courage. God will be with them. Press on in this work. And so from then on, they had a 24-7 guard. They're just working, ready to fight at a moment's notice. Chapter 6, the attacks become focused on Nehemiah himself. The opponents try and lure him out of the city to assassinate him, but it doesn't work. They try and discredit him. It doesn't work. Nehemiah prevails. The result, chapter 6, verse 15, it says, So the wall was completed. They finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. It's less than two months. They finished rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. It, it is, is crazy. Verse 16 says, When all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And they realized Jerusalem now is, is secure. With walls and with gates, it's a, it's a game changer in the ancient world. But more importantly, they, they saw that there's only one way this happens. From the temple to the walls, Israel's God is with them, and he was. Nehemiah continues to lead Israel in, in social reform. This is testimony to God's faithfulness. This is what God can do through a people who, who work together, but more importantly, who, who trust him and serve him. Well, lastly now, Nehemiah 8 through 13. Just taking you through, again, that synopsis. And to finish Nehemiah, chapters 8 through 13. Just ongoing revival and reform. Religious reform. Now, Ezra comes back in the picture. They're dwelling securely. And, um, you know, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but it's, it's an amazing testimony that they gather all the people together 
And Ezra reads the law before the people. At this time, most of them, they had not even heard the law of Moses. They, they had no idea what it said. They were completely ignorant of their law. But Ezra stands up. He, he erects a wooden pulpit, it says. This is the, the lineage, uh, the first mention of a wooden pulpit. He's going to preach. He takes the law out and he, he, he reads it. Then he explains it to give the sense. He's preaching the law to them. He reads and preaches. And all throughout the crowd, there's interpreters. Some people don't even speak the language anymore. So there's interpreters also making known the word to them. The people hear, they answer, they, they bow down, they worship, they respond. Some weep because they realize, wait, this is what God expects of us. Expects of us. We've not been doing this at all. They realize how much they violated the law. But this is revival. This is, this is the Israelite version of the Great Awakening. The people hear the law. They, they repent in mass. They, they believe in mass. There's a, a revival. As a result of this, the people make a covenant with one another. They're like, we're going to keep the law. We are not going to violate this law. We're not going to intermarry. We're going to keep the Sabbath. We're going to do what's prescribed. They vow to do what is right before the Lord. And this is, this is a time of reform. And, and that's, it's a wonderful thing. It sounds great. And that, that takes us through Nehemiah chapter 12, all this reform. Then you get to chapter 13. And here you need to know, we're jumping forward in time. This one chapter takes us forward. About 20 years. Nehemiah was the governor, but he went back to Persia. The, the king only let him go for a little while. He's like, you can't go forever. And so he went back to Persia after the walls were built. But then later on, he goes back to Jerusalem one more time to serve as governor. And when he shows up 20 years later, what does he find? Violation. They went back on their vow. Temple violation. They weren't paying tithes for the priests. They weren't keeping the letter of the law. They weren't keeping the Sabbath. They were starting to intermarry. All the same things. And so Nehemiah is outraged. He lays down the law. And he corrects these violations. Nehemiah himself literally bears the sword to force them to stop. He's not killing anybody, but he's threatening them and using force to get them to conform to God's law. It's pretty interesting. Chapter 13, verse 25. It's just an interesting verse. He hears about the mixed marriages again, intermarriage. It says, so Nehemiah writes, so I contend. uh, Most likely these are Nehemiah's memoirs that Ezra used to compile his account. But Nehemiah is saying, so I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Just contrast when Ezra saw the intermarriage of the people, it says he pulled out his own hair. It's a sign of repentance. But Nehemiah is pulling out their hair. He is going after them. He's like, you will not do this again. Very interesting. And this is how Nehemiah ends. That's it. This is how the book ends. It's just a recounting, though, of the ongoing unfaithfulness of Israel to keep the law, the letter of the law. They had made real reformed. It's true. They were not worshiping foreign gods. They were worshiping Yahweh, living in the land. Temple worship resumed. Elements of the theocracy were back in place. But the hearts of the people were still not fully given over to their God. The sins that got them exiled 
We're coming back again. They're, they're, they're starting to re-sprout. So I, like you have a field of weeds and you mow the whole thing and it looks pretty good. But then if a couple of rains, like they, they're coming right back. You've not, you've not done anything. It, it almost sounds like, like the problem with this people is in their hearts. It's almost like these people are going to need new hearts if they're actually going to do what God expects them to do. And I think Nehemiah leaves us with this implicit anticipation. At this point, much had been restored. Much of the God-given theocracy. The law is back. The royal priesthood is back. Temple worship, sacrifice had resumed. Prophets were communicating. But, but one central aspect of the theocracy was still missing. There's no Davidic king on the throne leading the people in righteousness. And that's what they needed the most. They needed a righteous king who could lead them in true righteousness, even make them righteous, even give them new hearts. Nehemiah and others could wield the sword, but learn this lesson. There's one thing the sword can't do. It can't change hearts. You can get outward conformity with the sword, but you cannot change a heart with the sword. And so despite the great gains after the exile, Israel is still left waiting. As the the narrative of the Old Testament ends, this is it. There's no more history of the Old Testament in the Bible after this. As the narrative ends, Israel is simply left to still wait for a son of David who will come, make things right, restore the hearts of the people back to their God. I think this can get us into, as we kind of finish up here into the purpose of Ezra and Nehemiah, the purpose of these books. Why did Ezra give us the sequel to Chronicles? Why did he write these books? Just, just to purely inform us what happened after the exile? No, I mean, it, it has that effect, but there's more going on here. Now, for one, there is optimism. They're given to show God's faithfulness to his word, to his promises, and to his people. Look, God told him, if you go astray and worship other gods, you'll be exiled. That word came true. He's faithful to that word. He also told them, in the day you repent and cry out to me again, I'll bring you back. And Ezra's showing God was faithful to that promise as well, to restore them to the land. He's merciful. He's compassionate. And he sovereignly preserved them and restored them to the land. But in addition, though, Ezra and Nehemiah tell of Israel's renewal and following the Lord after the return. There's highlights here. Again, temple worship, the priesthood, the law. There is a real revival that takes place. And they, they have massive gains. Rebuilding the altar, the temple, the city, the walls. These were monumental feats. And, and God enabled them to take place. These people are finally taking serious the law of Moses. A lot, a lot of things were going good. But just not good enough. Because Ezra and Nehemiah also show that the people still were falling short. Despite all the reforms, they still were, were failing to live exactly as God told them to live. They were failing to give God all of their heart. They, they just, they couldn't keep the letter of the law. And so I think Ezra and Nehemiah were also written to show the people what they truly need. Following right into the theme of First Second Chronicles that just... You need this, this promised Davidic king with this Davidic covenant. This, this is your only hope that this king will come to, to usher in a new covenant 
and make you new. This is the one part of the theocracy they still lacked, uh, this, this promised Davidic king. And as the other prophets of this time spoke of, he would lead them with a new covenant, give them new hearts, cause them to walk in God's statutes. And until this king would come, Israel would always falter. In turn, Israel would have to live under Gentile kings. That need not depress them, because Ezra and Nehemiah also go to show that, look, God's the real king, and he's the one who controls the hearts of all kings. It's a small thing for God to use Gentile kings to, to preserve his people, even to bless them. And so in all, Israel's hope is not lost. Ezra knows, look, for the foreseeable future, they will not have a Hebrew king on the throne. They will be a people, slaves in their own land, oppressed in their own land under foreign domination. But that does not mean they're without hope. God, the king, is on their side. If they seek him and then anticipate the day when, when the Savior King will come, these books just anticipate and purify their hope for the coming king. And with this purpose in mind, what these books are about, it's worthwhile to point out to you just really a special focus here in Ezra and Nehemiah. This is where they stand out with this, this special theme. And that is God's sovereignty over kings. We've highlighted it a little bit, but I want to just show it to you actually in full now. Because a big theme in these two books is the sovereignty of God specifically over Gentile kings. Ezra highlights this to encourage Israel. Like the time of the Gentiles was at hand. Israel would not know national sovereignty. They would not be ruled by a Davidic king. But that doesn't mean it's, it's the end. Because God could still turn the hearts of these pagan Gentile kings in their favor. God is still the real king of kings. And all Israel needs to do is just trust him completely. And seek him and walk in his ways. And, and God will... The fact that they don't have a king is no matter. He'll use other kings to secure them and prosper them in the land. So you see this theme in Ezra and Nehemiah through these, these recurring fa- uh, phrases. They speak of God's so- uh, sovereignty in the lives of the people. Let me give you a, a quick little rundown. You know, we read Ezra 1 verse 1 and verse 5. It says, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to let the Jews return. At the same time, the Lord stirred the spirits of the Israelites to go rebuild the temple. God was doing this. Ezra 6.22. Israel rejoices after the completion of the temple. And for the Lord had caused them to rejoice. And it says the Lord had turned the heart of the king to encourage them in the work of the house of God. God was turning the heart of the king to bring this about. Ezra 7.6. The king favored Ezra. Why? Because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. We read that. That shows up about eight times. Keep saying it. The reason they prospered was God's hand. It wasn't Ezra's hand or Nehemiah's hand, but God's hand. Ezra 7.27 says, God put his will in the heart of the king. And then Nehemiah 2.12 says, God put his will in the mind of Nehemiah. God is bringing about his will even through Gentile kings. Nehemiah 4.15 says, regarding opposition to building the walls, that God frustrated their plan to attack, that God was going to build for them. Nehemiah 6.16, God's hand was clearly seen in building the walls. 
It just goes on over and over. God's hand, God working, God stirring, God turning hearts. This is an overwhelming emphasis, an undercurrent of God's sovereignty, his unilateral sovereignty. He's not asking permission from the king of Persia to do this. He's just turning his heart as he pleases to bring about his hidden counsel. This is what God does. He's our sovereign God. He's the king of kings, and he will bring about his purposes. This language is everywhere, and, and it's letting Israel know the source of their success. You know, among the kings and peoples in their previous history and current history, the only reason they find success, they find blessing, is just their, their God is with them. He's working for them, not against them. God is sovereign. At the same time, man is responsible. You see that in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're still held accountable to act, to do what is right. To learn that lesson as these doctrines go side by side, sovereignty and responsibility. This God is sovereign. He will work to bless his people, but he does not bless them apart from their obedience, from their repentance and faith. They still need to seek this God and cry out to him in prayer. You know, prayer, we don't have time for it, but prayer is another huge undercurrent. You just study Ezra and Nehemiah, focus on all the times they prayed. There's big prayers. There's little prayers. They're just breathing prayer, calling out to their God. That's what they must do. They know God is sovereign. He must act. They're exerting their responsibility by calling out to him in prayer to do just that. But these were meant to, to let Israel know that the source of their strength, the source of their success would be their God at work on their behalf. They, they really just need to trust this God. Faith, the essence of faith, not just keeping the law. Yeah, they had to obey, but from a willing, faithful heart, that's what God regards. And, you know, by a quick word of application, you know, in recent days and years, Christians in America have been faced with a question we really haven't had to face in a long time or really ever in American history. How do we live under a government That's increasingly hostile to our faith. What's it like to live under a wicked pagan government? How does that change things for the church? How should we respond? What does God expect? What does that mean for the future of the church? We've never really had to worry about that in America. Not that it's been an overwhelmingly Christian nation, but from the top down, not not that big a deal. But realize, look, this is the setting of Ezra and Nehemiah. For Israel. But so much of what we've learned here in principle still applies. The church in scripture, like Israel, was never guaranteed religious freedom or religious liberty. That, that's, that's a blessing. It's not, that's not a guarantee though. We're never guaranteed to be under friendly civil authorities. In fact, typically we're told to expect the opposite. That the world and its leaders will hate us because of the cross. But this fact is not meant to diminish our hope or joy because we too as God's people are meant to just completely rest in God's sovereignty, this overwhelming, unchallengeable sovereignty. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's still working to move the hearts of kings and presidents to bring about his hidden will. And there's there's just no stopping that. There's no force that can stop that. And look, we know his big purposes. We don't know all of his tiny specific purposes, but big picture, he's going to build his church in this age. He will sanctify his people and it will culminate in the return of this Messiah King to usher in his kingdom 
and to restore his reign on the earth. And so no matter what happens in our nation or on the world stage, you got nothing to worry about. You just have to trust God to work all things out for our good, for his glory. One thing you shouldn't do is doubt God. It doesn't matter what you see happening in this country. Don't, don't fret. Don't question your God. Has he not shown his character enough? All these books of the Bible we've been studying time and time again, he's always found faithful and true to his promises. It's easy in scripture because we have the perspective of time. We see you know, the before and after. When you're sitting in Egypt for 400 years, though, waiting, it's a little harder to trust God. And that's our problem. It's just the problem of time. We just lack that perspective. But learn wisdom from Scripture. Learn the easy way. God will bring about his will, his promises. So the same right response for us, then, is is like Ezra and Nehemiah do all the time. is just to pray. Pray more. If you find yourself troubled by the events of our own country these days or the world. If you're afraid, well, just pray more. God still has the power, by the way, to radically reorient the hearts of rulers and to make them bless his people. If that's his will, it's not all his will, but if God willed, he could convert Gavin Newsom and force him to bless the church in California. If he wanted, would it be any more radical than Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus? It wouldn't. If, if God so willed, he could do so. But even if he doesn't, we, we need not fear. We're in his hands. He will care for his church. He will protect and preserve his people. You just need to pray. Let your requests be made known to God. That's your primary response in these times, living under, under Gentile rule. We remember God. We give thanks for his past deeds. We intercede. We make petition for ourselves, for the church, for our leaders, like we're told to in, in 1 Timothy 2. God is still always faithful to his promises. He will sovereignly work to bless and secure his people, but he still chooses to do so through through willing, obedient, faithful, trusting people. So better for you to be a part of his plan, to be on the inside, to be in his will, not out of it. And you do that by doing the same thing Israel was supposed to do. Just trust God, seek him, walk in his ways. And, uh, and pray. And you express, we need to express all of this to God in our daily dependence in prayer. And that uh, he will care for us. Let's do that now. Let's finish in a, a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we, we need to, to study your word. It's not just history. Although there is much of that, Lord. But we see the hand of God. We see the mind of God. The word of God for your people. First Israel, but by way of application the church as well. We're just learning who our God is, how he operates. And we see this is a God who has a plan, a kingdom that is coming. His will done on earth through his king. Israel got to look forward to it. We get to look backward to it. It's fulfillment in Christ. Yet we still long for the day when the kingdom is on earth, Lord. Our hearts still yearn. We still desire justice in our land. We still are prone to worry and be afraid over what will come with our our leaders, our rulers, our kings. We have no righteous king on the throne. But that need not make us worry or fear or lose hope or despair because you're the king and you're still on the throne and we have all the assurance we need by studying your scripture. That's all we need. You've given us all we need for life and godliness, for faith and trust in this more sure word. And that gives us the reassurance just to trust you, 
Nothing else. We will trust you to work out your will. We'll be responsible. We'll do what is right. We'll pray. But we do trust you, Lord, to to bring your kingdom and, and your will on earth. Convict us to pray. Convict us to rightly respond, to not fret, and to live as lights until Christ returns and to be a force of, of good in this land uh, while we're here. Thank you for your word in this time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.